0: Well, good morning. I, uh, if you ask my wife who's here today, uh, my wonderful wife, I love her to death. Uh, she's such a good sport. But if you ask what one of my most redeeming qualities would be, what would not make the list would be uh, the way that I act if I get woken up in the middle of the night. I am not the nicest of people in the middle of the night if I get woken up. It's it's not intentional. I don't mean to be unpleasant, uh, but she's great. She's a good sport. She sticks by my side anyway. I mean, all through three kids, kids wake up in the night. I think she learned early on with our first child, um, if she were to try to wake me up to kind of go and handle something, it became much more of a task to not only handle the baby and me, so it just became a better system to just let him sleep and deal with the situation herself. Very gracious of her. I, I can't commend her enough for all the hard work she puts in, but I'm just not good being woken up in the middle of the night. Uh, I don't know why, it probably stems from childhood, I would guess. Uh, When I was a child, I would routinely get woken up in the middle of the night often, and the reason why they would wake us up in the middle of the night is because they would get all of my brothers and I, and we would kind of half sleepwalk our way to the car at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and my mom and my dad would pile in this car, and all three of the children would pile in the car, and you'd probably think, like, why in the world would you jump into a car at 3 o'clock in the morning in the middle of the night? I mean, we would ride to this airport. We would take my father to the airport and Hall and Oates would be playing or maybe the Alan Parsons Project. Probably, you don't even know who that is probably, but 80s, right? I, sidebar, I get accused around here a lot. I won't tell you about who, of being some sort of 90s Christian music savant. I, I, am, I reject that title wholeheartedly. Uh, 80s is far more my speed. But uh, to this day, if a Hall & Oates song comes on, I have vivid memories of getting in the car in the middle of the night and driving to Will Rogers Airport as a young boy in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Um, why would we do that? Why would we get in the car and drive to the airport at 3 o'clock in the morning? It's real simple. My father had orders to be there. See, my father was in the military. He was in the Air Force, and... He would go on these tours, and I remember even at the earliest memories I had, three, four, five years old, my dad would leave, and he would, we'd drive him to the airport, and we knew, we knew the moment we got there that when he walked through that fence, that gate, that we wouldn't see him again for months at a time, sometimes three months, sometimes six months, one time he went for an entire year. And as a young boy, that was hard. That was difficult, right? You, you look up to your dad. He's a hero to you. You want to be close to him. And the thing that was about to happen was all of that was about to be taken away for months at a time. And it wasn't like you could get on the phone and talk to him. Actually, we didn't get to correspond with him at all where I could hear his voice or see his person. All we had were these cards that would come in the mail every so often. He would send these postcards. He would be in Saudi Arabia or Iceland. This was in the height of the Cold War in the 80s, right? And so they were going and doing a lot of stuff over there, long periods of time. But these cards would hit the mailbox. And I remember my mom would come in and say, hey, there's a postcard from dad. And it was like like Christmas morning. Because you were so excited just to hear what he was doing, what he thought. And it was only a little short paragraph that he could write to fit it all on the card. But he would fill every blank space on that card up nintendos bicycles it didn't matter what kids had that became my most prized possession in the times when my dad was not there it was hard um i remember though the most excited i've probably ever been in my life or at least one of the most exciting times in my life would be the moment where you'd set your eyes on when we come back through that gate i can see it in my eyes now walking around the corner coming through that gate because you got to put your arms around him you got to hear his voice you got to be close again it was so exciting it was just a tough thing um It's tough for a lot of reasons. I imagine it's probably tough for my dad. You know, as a father with young children, it's not really easy. I'm like miserable if I have to go for a week somewhere. Uh, By day two, I'm just staring at pictures in my bed, like in tears. Uh, People wonder if I'm like having an emotional break. I just don't like being away from the people I love most. But he would go for these long, long periods of time. I imagine it was probably very, very difficult for him to do that for a couple reasons. One, it's just hard to be away from your family. But two, he would go and, and he wouldn't really know why. I don't know if you've been around military life much, but orders are these things that come and you receive them and then you go and you do them. It's really that simple. And his orders were be at the airport at three o'clock in the morning on such and such day and get on the plane and go. He didn't know where, why. He didn't know the big picture. He didn't have... Uh, intel into the local, uh, into the quiet room where the joint chiefs were all scheming and planning and moving all the proper pieces so you could know everything that was going to transpire. He didn't have all that information. He just had to go get on a plan and do what he was told and just wait for the next thing. That'd be tough for me. I'm not that way. I couldn't be that guy. I'm far more of a, hey, give me the plan, give me the rundown, show me the big picture, and let me see if my investment, if my cost to get involved is worth what I think the outcome might produce. That's the way I look at everything. I could never do what my father did. And I imagine Paul is a guy who uh, is much like me. And the reason I say that is because Paul is um, Paul writes this letter in Ephesians, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians with me. Paul writes this letter in Ephesians, and he starts out in this way that I'm like, man, this sounds an awful lot like he's trying to paint a wonderful picture, the big picture, the whole thing. He's trying to give you the whole thing right out of the chute. And he does that, so let's just read that together. It says this. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, If you look closely, what you'll realize is it's it's not a whole lot of sentences, actually. These are some of the longest sentences you'll see in Scripture. It's beautiful language, though. It's beautiful because uh, Paul is describing something. He's trying to paint a picture with words, right? Uh, You kind of get a sense of the excitement and the energy coming off the page. Phrase attached to phrase attached to phrase. Like If you're a, a grammar teacher, English teacher in here... Like this is, this is like the greatest thing you've ever seen. Like diagramming extravaganza right here. If you're a student of English or grammar, this is a nightmare. Trying to figure out what goes with what, what's uh, modifying what, how do we uh, work this out? It's, It's tough, but Paul does this thing. He paints this picture and he's trying to show you what the big picture is, what the big plan is. What is this plan? What is this picture? What is going on? What is Paul drawing your attention to? I'll try to sum it up, 14 verses like this. It's it's simply the gospel. I apologize to you this morning. There's there's not going to be something that I say today that's so profound or something you might have never heard before or something that you come to get an explanation in the text from. There's nothing really just overwhelmingly profound about what's being said about the words on the page, although the impact of it is. But sometimes we just need to hear these things. Here's, Here's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to show you that there's a God who's big enough. There's a God who's big enough. This God is so big that at the very utterance of the sound of his voice, molecules and matter are created. And that this God saw fit before time and space were even a creation of his own, before any of that even were in place and in existence. He saw fit to create a plan and a purpose to put you and I in this very moment in this very place. Not just as being at church in Hoover, Alabama this morning, but being the church together, sons and daughters of him. He did this before time and space began. He did it so that you could understand what what kind of God that he is. And he had a purpose behind it. The purpose was that he would be this loving and affectionate and intentional relationship that he would create with you and with I. And he did it in a very particular way. Paul writes through 14 verses elaborately this picture. And this picture is this, that God has a plan. What is this plan? The plan was this, that he would take his one and only son, very biblical sounding language, right? His one and only son. And Christ would come and he would do something very particular. He would come down. The language is directional for a reason because it was a humiliating process. It was a humbling process to go from being the king of all the universe to now being among the universe he created. But God's plan was that he would send Jesus to come and do just that. Why? So that he can walk among us, so that he could come and be around the people he created, that he loves, that he wishes and longs for a relationship with, to be scorned and rejected by them? Yeah. He came to be around those people and to live life among those people. Not just a life, not just any life, but a perfect life. A life you and I don't know about because we are not that way. But it wasn't just that. That wasn't the whole plan. The whole plan was not only that he would come and walk among us, but he would be rejected by the ones he came and to love and to, to save, right? So much so that it, it would cost him his life. Jesus came, sacrificed his life, not just in a simple way, but probably in the most torturous and brutal way humanity has ever known. Knowingly did that. But it didn't just stop at his sacrifice in his life, Three days later, he defeated death. He was raised from the dead. And then he ascended back into heaven to take his place where he belongs, which was the king of all creation that he had created. God put all of that in motion so that you and I would know what it's like to be in relationship with him. That's pretty intentional, it's pretty affectionate, it's pretty loving. Which makes sense because the Bible says he is love. He's motivated by his loving nature. How intentional is it? How affectionate is it? The Bible says he knows the number of hairs that are on your head in this very moment. I want you to just think about that for a second. If you're anything like me, as I brush my hair or even this giant beard on my face, if you look down, what you notice is the number changes pretty pretty frequently. He knows the number now. He knows the one from yesterday. He knows the one from tomorrow, and he knows the one for next week. I think the point the Bible is trying to make in all of this is this. You matter. You matter. Again, that's not profound. That's not going to theologically blow your socks off today, but you need to hear it for a reason. Today, you need to understand that God believes that you matter enough that he would do all of those things. Not just in the moment as a reaction to the circumstance, but before time and space even began, it was his plan to make sure that you knew it. That's powerful, y'all. That's powerful. I need to hear this. I need to hear this. I've been at this Christian life thing for over 25 years. That's a long time. And I feel like every day, every week, I desperately need to hear this more and more. Life has a way of pulling us apart in so many different directions. And sometimes it's just nice to hear that God feels like you matter enough that he was willing to go to the ends of the earth to get you. It matters. We need to hear the infinite worth of the gospel and the way that he loves you. It's a powerful message. Uh, I began a new journey just a couple years ago. I went to school, went back to school. I was getting a master's in education. And I started, I'm just about to complete my first full year in education. And what I do in education, uh, I do inclusion for special education. And I, I just want to briefly describe you what that looked like over the course of like a few months. When they first walked in my door for the first day, you kind of have this natural inclination to start sizing kids up. This one looks like this, this one says these things, this one reacts to this this way, and, and you kind of begin to feel out how the year's probably gonna go based on your first impressions. That's a mistake, y'all. You should never do that. Not in what I do, because what I began to realize was this. My approach to education is really just my approach to, to everyday life, and that is this. People just need to be loved and cared for. Do they need education? Absolutely. Are we there because we wanna teach them education? Absolutely. But it turns out people respond pretty dramatically when they hear things like, you matter, or I care about your success, or I want to see you do good things, or I believe in you even when the rest of the world around you doesn't. I can tell you story after story after story of kids that I can see their faces in my mind right now, the way that they've come from August to May, just based on the fact that somebody looked at them and said, you have value. And if none of the rest of the world ever shows you that that's true, let me be at least somebody who stands in place to say for at least a year of your schooling, I believe it and I want to show you. I was blown away. People talk about how, man, the kids, they've, they've really come a long way. It's changed me. There's something about watching a kid who you know has the most broken home I could ever imagine come to you and smile with a smile you didn't think they could possibly put on their face because they trust you that they believe what you're saying is true. It turns out that in humanity, we're designed in a way where when somebody looks at you and says, you have value and you have worth, and it's worth pursuing and knowing the one that put that in you, that there's something significant about that that changes how we live our life. And Paul knows it. Paul goes on throughout the rest of Ephesians to begin to tell you the life that you are supposed to be living he sets all this up, not just in chapter one, but he goes on through chapter two and chapter three, and he expounds on this big picture that he's putting out in front of people. And then in chapters four, five, and six, he says, so guess what, guys? Here's what you do with it. And right out of the shooting in chapter four, he says, you got to live the life you're called to. Well, that sounds really challenging and really difficult, right? The Christian life is not easy, especially if we see it like a task kind of thing, like a chore, like, well, we have to read our Bible more. We have to pray more. We should show up to church, right? Because it's the right thing to do. No, what Paul's trying to explain to you is this. If you believe and grasp the gospel and you see the value that God has placed in you and you believe that he loves you to the depth that he does, your response becomes, how do we go out there and live that? He goes on later in the letter and he talks about How to raise children well. Good luck with that one. That's a tough one. I have three of my own. I can tell you this. That's a challenge. That's a challenge to be um, honoring to the Lord every day, day in and day out, in the raising of your children. But there's a way to do it. He addresses husbands and wives. That's a tough one too sometimes. He also addresses the unity of the body. All of us together as a church. How do we be unified? What does that even look like? What does it mean? And Paul sets this whole letter up with a structure that makes sense. He starts and he says this, uh, know the value and the worth that you have. Know that it also is the picture that you have to clean. It's foundational so that you can go and live out this life. Why does he write this letter to begin with? Paul's not really addressing particular issues like he does in other letters, right? In Galatians, there's, there's an issue going on. Uh, there's uh, these Gentile believers and the leadership in the church are looking at them saying, hey, this is great. Jesus is perfect. That's what you need. You check that box. Everything's good. Also, get circumcised. You'd be a little more spiritual if you did that. Look a little more Jewish, and then you're really going to hit it off for Jesus. Trust me. Paul goes, I need, I need to stop that. I need to stop that message because you're wrong. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's just Jesus. In Colossians, he begins to address false teachings that were creeping into the church. Why? Because he's a shepherd. He's a pastor. He's afraid that they'll be pulled in a direction that's false and untrue. He doesn't want them to fall victim to that. So he says, hey, I'm going to write you a letter. And I'm going to address the issues that I'm seeing. In Corinthians, he does the same thing. They're living like crazy people in Corinth. He goes, no, you can't do that. It's not the life you've been called to. So I'm going to write a letter, I'm going to address the issues that I'm seeing from you, and then I'm going to try to turn you back to the thing that's true and noble and good for you. He doesn't do that in this letter. In fact, some would even argue, some scholarship would say that this letter actually wasn't even addressed to the Ephesians. It made it to the Ephesians, but Paul would write some of these things what we would call circular letters. They'd be be passed around from church to church because they were meant to encourage the whole body. They weren't specific issues for a specific place. He was trying to explain something to the whole of the churches that existed. And so he would move these letters around. Paul wrote Ephesians not to address an issue or correct a thing, but because he believed that discipleship was a thing that all believers and all churches needed. And so that's why he wrote. And the very first thing out of the gate that he writes is this. The only way that discipleship is going to work for you and for me and for church is this. That you believe the value that you have and the worth that you have. And you believe that Jesus was willing to come and sacrifice everything for it to make you whole again in Christ. It's a pretty powerful message. And then from there, once you begin to grasp and cling to that. Once your heart and the deep places of your soul begin to realize, man, that... I can stand on my own two feet. I do have a worth. I do have a purpose. There is a reason that I'm here and I'm doing these things. There isn't these, uh, there's not something in this world that should be pulling me apart from this and keeping me from ever believing it to be true, no matter what those things might be. That this is more valuable, this is more true, and this is the thing that everything revolves around. Once you begin to cling to that and grasp that, that's called the foundation. With my students all the time, I always look at them and say, builders never put roofs on houses first. They don't. It doesn't make any sense. There's nothing to put a roof on. The first thing they build is the foundation. Paul is building a foundation. And the reason he's doing it is because he knows that everything, every brick that's laid, every uh, piece of wood that goes into the finished product is going to be built upon the fact that this is the thing that matters most. You need to know that God was intentional before the foundations of the world ever existed to come after you because you matter. Guys, I need to hear it. I need to hear it often. It's impossible to do the things that Paul's going to continue to lay out in Ephesians if we don't grasp that first. And he uses such wonderful and beautiful language to do it. I, uh, I don't know if you caught this in, uh, in the reading of the text, but um, I just want to read a few lines to you again from verse 3. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us. See, we benefit from all of this. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption. Can I stop for a second? Uh, that, these words, like he chose us and he predestined us. I, to this day, I, I think I have PTSD from like the, the late 90s, early 2000s, like the theology wars that, that I mean, it's not a new war. Uh, this, is, this is not a new phenomenon. This has been going on for centuries. Uh, but I remember coming to faith in Christ as a believer uh, before my senior year of high school. I was, I was a teenager. And I got under some leadership and some, some people who were really invested in me. It was, it was tremendous for me. It, I grew, uh, began to understand some things. I got really excited about theological things. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not downplaying the need to study and understand who God is and why it matters. But I've come from a place, I've been around a lot of churches where I've seen pastors be run off, churches split and fight, division just get rooted so deep because of what we believe about some of the words that appear on these pages. And I remember entrenching myself in a camp, a theological camp, ready to like load my theological weapons and fire back at anybody. To the point, and I've even admitted this to you guys before, like a verse like John 3.16 almost became like, like gross to me. What a tragedy. One of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture, one of the most well-recognized verses across the world became something that the other side used for their argument and therefore I became a person that said, I just don't care for that anymore because I know the fight is real and I need to convince you that I'm right, you're wrong and I don't want to uh, touch the places and the verses that you touch because it almost feels icky to me. You need to know that this is right. And so we'd load up and we'd fight and we'd butt heads. And I I can vividly remember losing friendships and relationships over what we thought about what appears on these pages. All of which, by the way, was not necessary for salvation. It was kind of tragic, really. Um, Paul doesn't for a second use that language as if he's trying to win an argument. Paul's not walking on any theological eggshells here. Paul's actually using that language to emphasize the greatness of what's actually taking place so that you would grasp and see the reality of what's going on. I think I could probably preach, uh, preach predestination and free will from the very same chapter in the Bible. I could do it. They're both in there. How does it work? I don't have the answer for you. I, my finite brain cannot wrap myself around the infinite that easily. doesn't mean we stop exploring, but I'm just telling you, that there's not an easy answer. That's why they've been fighting it for so long. Paul's not looking for a fight. Paul doesn't run from doctrinal language because he's afraid of how it might make people feel. He's using it intentionally to show you it's powerful. There's something amazing about a God who says, you don't even have to try to give the effort to earn your way in, to earn my respect or to earn my grace. You don't have to bring something to the table for me to look at and say, your resume's good enough, come on in. None of that matters. It's really about what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's powerful, y'all. It means something. What we use to divide ourselves sometimes, Paul is using to try to unite the body. He goes on in chapter 4 to say uh, the body should be united. That's the properly functioning way a church should work. You should be one body united together, not split, not divided, not rooted against each other based on what we believe about a certain thing. That is not priority for salvation. Paul's pretty intense here, and I love that his language, it's almost like you can hear him leaping for joy as he writes these things. He's not hiding from them. It's like, man, that's powerful. I'm, he's so overwhelmed by this. And here's the thing about where Paul's writing and what he's doing. Paul's current set of circumstances are he's in prison. I didn't tell you that part yet. Uh, I, I said I wouldn't do good getting orders and going halfway around the world and being away from my family. I wouldn't do good in prison either, I don't think. I'm not, not a prison guy. Uh just not, uh, doesn't sound like a fun place to be, doesn't sound like a fun experience to have, uh, but Paul found himself there fairly often because people did not like what he was pushing in the places that he went. And so Paul's writing these letters, uh, Colossians possibly, and this letter, and, and he's wanting to send them out to the churches. And all of his language, right from the very get-go, verse 1, it's like, he sounds happy, he sounds elated, he sounds joyous. He sounds like he's ready to jump up and, and just, you know, go crazy because he's excited about the beauty of the gospel. He goes, guys, you've got to have this. You've got to hear this. You've got to hear it again. If you know it already, listen again. It's amazing. Can you believe? It's, you can hear his excitement in his language. Can you believe a God would do something like that? So long ago, so far removed from all of us, and yet so close to us. Can you believe this? This is amazing. This changes everything. And because it changes everything, here's how we go forward. This is the tone of Paul's writing, and he's doing it while he's shackled in a prison. Not a pretty place to be. Prisons in Rome, I don't think were fun. It's hard. His life circumstances didn't warrant his tone. But the gospel does. The reality of what God does in your life definitely warrants the tone. Paul knows that you need to hear that you matter. Paul also knows that when you hear that you matter, it motivates you to go, all right, so what do we do now? And it sets us up for discipleship. And the discipleship of all this letter and all of this passage and the way that it unfolds in Paul's understanding and how he reacts to the churches also leads to one thing that he uses in this text three different times. He says this, to the praise of his glory. The beauty of the big picture is this. God's going to be glorified in it. We benefit, but if we make it only about us, we lose a key piece of the puzzle, which is this. God ultimately will be glorified in what we do and who we are because he has set this entire plan up for you and I to be little lights that go out in the world and shine because we're different. How are we different? How does the gospel make you and I different? It makes us different because we learn how to love well. I love my students, and what I realize is some of them come from places where they're not—they're not loved very well. Changes things, makes a difference. To just look back and love on them well, I I can't even begin to tell you the impact that has. We're different because we learn how to love well. We're good at loving ourselves, but loving well means we look out beyond ourselves into others. We're different because we learn how to forgive well. You remember when you were young, maybe you were in elementary school and a situation would go down on the playground and recess was getting a lot out of hand and a teacher would have to bring two kids together and go, hey, tell them you're sorry. And the kid would stand on and go, I'm sorry. All right, tell them you're forgiven. I forgive you. None of it valid, I'm sure, like in their hearts, right? But the process of teaching them the pattern was important. It's not that way. It's not that we just do it because we have to or because somebody's looking. We do it because in our hearts we're freed up to know what it's like to forgive and to let things be relieved from us. But maybe it's not just forgiveness. We're also different because we understand what restoration is. Should we understand restoration? Absolutely. That's what God's doing. In the text, it says that he's uniting all things to him back to to him again. He's restoring the right relationship that we were destined for, that sin had broken. Guys, when we demonstrate that in the real world that we live in every day, there's nothing like it. When you truly look and you're hurt and you're burdened by the actions or the words of someone else, and you find a way in your heart, not only forgive them, but then actively look to repair that relationship, guess what? It's never going back to what it was before. It's going to be something totally new and something different, something amazing. Why? Because it's been repaired by the gospel. The world doesn't understand what that is or how it works. We show them that. How do we know how to do that? Because Jesus did it. It's that simple. We're different, y'all. And at the end of the day, because we're different, because we go into this world as different people, God will ultimately be glorified. You know why? Because when the world sees true love, forgiveness, and restoration, the gospel things that penetrate and permeate us as a body, as a a group of believers, they look at that and go, why is my life so not like that? They do. The truth is, guys, I, I, I need to hear this often. I need to hear it regularly and routinely because it moves my heart to remember. It moves my heart to remember that God has done something significant and drastic. Again, there's nothing theologically profound about what we're talking about this morning, and yet the impact of it is immensely profound because we need to hear it routinely. It's another reason I love that we do communion here every week. I love it because it's this routine reminder to remember. Remember what? Remember the gospel. Remember the way that we're loved. Remember the, what we're called to. Remember that Jesus did something so cataclysmic and so drastic that it changed the course of humanity for all eternity. And you and I get to be a part of that. If that doesn't excite your soul, I don't know what will. And so I love that we come to the table. We're going to do that here in just a second. And um, This morning, I want you to think about it as a reminder, a reminder of what Jesus was willing to go to so that you and I can sit in this room, that we can be in relationship together, that we can have community, that we can grow in discipleship together. That's what we do here. We do those things. Chris says this all the time. We have like one move. Right. What's our move, Chris? It's Jesus. But within that move, we talk about four things, not 12, not 15, not 100. It's just four things. We're not very complex here. We love worship. We love discipleship. We love community. And we love mission. We love to be about God. We love to be about each other. And we love to go be about the world. Simple. I'm not trying to blow your minds with anything this morning. I'm trying to show you that God is worth pursuing because he has pursued pursued you to the ends of the earth to make sure that you know how truly loved and how valuable you are. And that is worth everything. So today we're going to come to the table to remember that to share in that together. So let's pray together as we do that. Lord, we are... Lord, we confess, honestly, that sometimes we're just not amazed enough. Sometimes, Lord, the, the shiny things this world throws in front of us distract us from the true greatness of knowing that you've not only come and drawn near... To ones who are so undeserving. But you've adopted us into your family that we would obtain just a crazy inheritance of being yours. God, may we never lose sight of the fact that that is truly an amazing gift. And God, may it be a thing that pushes us, pushes us to a place to say, how do we, how do we know more about this? How do we grow deeper into this? And may we be pushed to that place, not because we need to be better people because of it, but because it's the place we long to be in right relationship with you. And God, as we do that, may the world around us see that it's you. It's not us. Left to our own devices, we are terrible at this, God. As we pursue you faithfully, may the world see that it's you doing it in us so that you may be glorified. God, as we come to the table this morning, remind the depths of our souls how valuable this truly is, that you have made us a part of this great plan and purpose, and that each person that lives and breathes in this room matters. God, I don't know what goes on in the lives of each and every individual, but you do. And God, I know it's difficult sometimes. We ride a crazy roller coaster in life. But God, I pray that the constant, the steady thing, the static thing that will never leave these people is that they would understand just truly how deeply you love them. Let this time at the table be a reminder of that. And may our lives be a reflection of that as we walk out of this place. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.